0: Welcome to Last Call with Jamie and Christian. My guest today, Aaron Walsh, a mental skills coach, specializes in performance, leadership, coaching, and also does some work on culture and environment. I'm excited to have Aaron on as our guest. How
1: are you doing today? Yeah, good, buddy. Thanks to have you uh, here in the air. and have, uh, happy New Year to you. Hope you've had a good, uh, good holiday break, good Christmas break, and we're bang into 2023.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. You get to 23, you get to the new year. And everyone sort of resets their goals. I wonder how long it always takes for them to like to move off of those habits. (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been a huge fan of James Clear over the year. And he, you know, he says you don't uh, rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your system.
0: Yeah. Um, I think
1: it's such a good insight. Goals are just GPSs. But if your system's not developed, then they don't matter.
0: Yeah. You know, one of, one of the ways that we connected is I started following your stuff on Twitter and I just loved how clear and concise it was. And I actually think I actually think it was one of the ones with James Clear back in September that you kind of tweeted out there as a response. And I was like, man, I really want to follow this person. And I've been learning a ton from you in the last few months. So I appreciate what you share to our community. Um, tell me a little bit about your background. Let our audience here kind of get uh, get accustomed to you. Um, probably a little unconventional,
1: I suppose. I'm a New Zealander, so, uh, you know, born and bred in New Zealand. Um, you know, as we discussed earlier, come from a big rugby background, so I've spent most of my life in rugby, either playing, coaching, um, that sort of thing. And then early 20s, uh, spent a decade in the US. So I, I married a girl from, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and that was, um, this outstanding. Still married, which is brilliant after 22 years, um. And so sort of got immersed then into the U.S. sporting culture, which was really different from what I was used to. So, you know, I'd come from a background in a a sport like rugby, which is very, you know, team first, uh, stay within your lanes, a certain set of behaviors and values, a certain culture that goes with it. And, man, I felt like I got into a new world once I landed (laughs) stateside. (laughs) And so just recently, I mean, the last, probably 10 years we've been back in New Zealand. I've done mostly back into rugby. So, you know, work uh, here in New Zealand, work over in Scotland for their national team. And then uh, in between that, I've done lots of consulting work. So in Major League Baseball, I've just done a little bit for USA Hockey. And then just within our national teams had to do a couple of cultural rebuilds, which were really, really interesting around coaches that sort of went off offline, I suppose. And I think, you know, you've probably really aware of the whole athlete well-being movement and athletes been able to have a voice in their development and in how they play. And, you know, we had some coaches that were really uh, anti that. So I had to do a couple of cultural rebuilds. And that was uh, just one of them was New Zealand women's football team that we had to go to the 2019 World Cup in France about six months after a, a um, coach was fired. So, you know, some done some really interesting and uh, quite eclectic work across the the spectrum so I've really enjoyed the variety and the. Uh, I think it's helped me develop um, try to develop clarity around the work when you're in such different environments you have to be really simple and really clear.
0: Yeah it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here because I felt like uh, there's so many good things in there like let's talk about first we've had some um, we've actually had some from general managers for some some clubs in Europe and We've talked a little bit about the culture in the United States versus the culture in the world. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about just recognizing the differences, the good and the bad.
1: Yeah, I think I'll start with the positive because I think sometimes U.S. sports in particular gets a bit of a bad rap. But I don't, I don't see it through that lens alone. Um, I think because we see the individualistic displays and we think that it's a that's all it's about. Which, you know, working in the sports, I, I figured it wasn't about that. What I, what I love is the optimism. And I think that's a really, you know, like I, I think about all the players that I, I coach and, you know, very early in our conversations when I work with a new player, I'll ask them a little bit around their development and how they've developed over the years. And one of the questions I have, have you developed by looking at what you do well and trying to be the best in the world at that? Or do you think ultimate development occurs through you working on your weaknesses all the time? And, You know, I think the world that I come from, it's changing, thankfully. But for a long time, it was, we call it work on based improvement. So every, you know, you play a game, you get the three things you don't do well, you go work on it. And it just didn't make sense to me because they're not in the room for what they don't do. They're in the room for what they do do. And so why would you neglect the things that got them on the court or on the field And, you know, working on some weaknesses is fine, but you might only get 5% improvement. But if you become best in the world at what you're already good at, then your improvement goes through the roof. But from a mental aspect, how do you have authentic belief in yourself as an athlete or as a coach when all you do is look at what you don't do well? And so what I love about the US culture is I think there's a, a, a slant towards belief and optimism and what I can do well, which I think is really, really refreshing. Um, I think the challenging aspect um, is, and I think we talked about it earlier, I don't think US sports give enough attention to the mental side of performance. Yeah, And even though it's growing and it's emerging and there might be people in the building who are ticking a box, I don't think it's yet integrated into the performance uh, jigsaw. And I think it's a really, and, and it's not because people don't care about it. Like I did some research for a paper I'm writing in I think it came back like 100% of coaches I interviewed around the world agreed that the mental side contributed to the overall performance of an athlete, but only 11% of them had a program in place to meet those needs. Yeah. So it's the difference between actualized and perceived value, right? We, we think we value it, but in reality, we don't. Because the best way to measure if you value somebody if you're building a program is how much time and money. And I think time's a better measure than money because money is easy to throw at a program. But when you actually take time and already a time poor environment and dedicate it to developing something like the mental aspects of performance, that means you're placing a high priority on it. You know, as a head coach, you got no time. So for you to say, you know, once a week, we're going to get a guy up who's integrated fully into our environment, understands what we're trying to accomplish. And for 20 minutes, he's got the whole team to work through some um, mental skills training or to look at some stuff around identity or to look at check in and see how our culture is doing that's a that's a pretty big sacrifice and it's a big sign that you value something.
0: Yeah, that's one of my questions. I mean, we're going to have uh, about three or four mental skills performer performance coaches on and yep. one of my biggest questions is what's the best way for you that you feel is to integrate it into the culture?
1: Yeah, so I have a pretty clear process around that. Um, so, inter- integration is a is a collective agreement by an organization, not a statement by someone who's just been introduced into a team
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> so so a good question like for I, I like to ask an organization where does where do, do you have a mental performance strategy that fits within your overall performance strategy and the answer is nine times out of ten no um, so my process around it is is four I do four or five things so the first thing is you got to identify what model a team needs okay. so there's tons of different models so you've got from the top no program. Common. Then you will have like a minimalist program, which is have someone come in during preseason, maybe check in mid year, do your review. Right, that might be something. Then you have the most common one now, which is great. We're getting there, but it's still really common, which is a deficit model, which is we have someone in the building to help underperforming athletes.
0: Yeah.
1: The fourth one, which I sort of we're moving towards, which I really like, is a skill model. So you treat mental skills like any other the performance aspects of performance so like I come from a background where I did some work in S&C so my background understands that if you want to w- improve an athlete you've got to do three things you've got to assess them you've got to prescribe some work and you have got to monitor their progress so skill-based model really applies in the mental so in the mental when I go to a team if I, I assess the athlete I prescribe what I think is the right program for them to be working on and we monitor to see whether they're getting better now the fifth part the fifth sort of part of the model, which is what we're after right Is an integrated model. So that means that the mental side of performance is influences, how you coach influence, how you recruit it influences everything. Yeah. And, you know, so that's sort of come Then the second, second part of the sort of my uh, approach would be what framework you want to deliver the program through. And I'm a big believer in like a growth framework. So we work on uh, growing them as people, Growing their mindsets and having them grow under pressure. So you can imagine, like a pyramid. Yep. You got that. So then the third thing would be content. Okay, this sounds long, but if you want to integrate it, you got to do it properly, yeah. right? Content is not the ten key uh, psychological skills of an athlete. That's not the content. The content is what does the game demand of you mentally, and how are you going to meet those needs? So you think about it. If you're a point guard you know, versus a power forward versus a center. They have different mental yeah. needs in a game and just as they have different physical needs. So we'd never train them the same in the gym. So why would we train them the same with their mind? Okay. Uh, the fourth thing is how you deliver it, <laughs> which is you got to make it engaging and exciting. Like yeah. else the players will just go, if you get up there and find, and put fire up four research papers and some, you know, facts from a book, you'd lost them. Like you got to engage them. It's got to be energized. And then the fifth thing is the right person. And so why why I'm saying that is that so often we think the mental side of performance is we're there to provide a service and which I think is a reactionary service to what's going on in the environment, which is a terrible, terrible way to approach it. We've got to build a program that is strategic that can last longer than when we're in the building. So that would be sort of, I mean, it sounds long, but, you know, integration is hard work.
0: Yeah. No, I love it. I mean, I'm a, I'm an integrator. So as a, yeah. as a basketball coach, this the mental skills game was really important for our teams yeah. and we integrated it, you know, over the 10 years of success we had, we integrated it. And I thought it was really hard. I always feel like the challenges, I do some some consulting work as you do and a coach will say, well, you know, they'll bring, bring a problem to me, want me to help them with it. And yeah. the environment that we would create be so different. So sometimes the, the conversation, when I feel like when you're, making it a priority the way that i can communicate as a head coach is completely different than yep. if i'm not making it a priority
1: yeah completely and like when i when i think about it like i think i wrote things a few weeks ago like if you're a head coach there's three or four things that you need to do to make the mental skills uh program work you can't just go all right we've got someone in the room you know, go for it. And I'm like, you know, like number one, make them part of your coaching team. So in in the setups that I am, I'm not part of the medical team. So we separate really clearly well-being and performance. I'm not in the medical team. I'm not doing. Why do you,
0: why do you think they, why do you think so often they try to, they try to put it with the medical team?
1: Because I think they've got limited resources and they try and cover all of their bases, Hmm. but you know, there's some research coming out and I'm not sure when it is coming out, but it talks about the ultimate Sort of set up for a, a pro team, I'm just talking, or a college team like you've been part of, is to have a you know a psychologist who is dealing with the mental health needs, but you need a coach who is dealing with the performance needs. Yes, yeah. sometimes they're the same person, but very rarely they're not. And even if they are the same person who have high capability, they won't have the time to do both of those things well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like, I like them being different people. Um, well, it's
1: different skill set. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah completely, completely different skill set. It's like coaching you know, like if if you're thinking about it, if you're coaching D and then you've got to coach the offense, like you've got a different way of your approaching it. If you're talking about someone, how they organize their life to have good mental health, even though it has impact and influence and carries over to their performance on the field, the skills they need on the field are different from that. Yeah. So you can have really good well-being and be a poor performer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's been the you know, again, I'm a big person. i I've been huge in this integration process. And I think each job I've taken, I've wanted to dive, dive further into it. And I've yeah. been amazed at just the level of leadership sometimes above us that just didn't uh, didn't fully understand, you know, like, it's like, well, you have this. It's like, well, you, you really need both or more, you know, like I, my idea is like you have a mental skills coach, you have a psychologist or a therapist. I think you also should have someone that kind of ties into religion. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's a thing too. And when, and the beautiful thing about those people um, that help you is that the players don't see them as connected to the head coach in a way that prefers playing time. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's where I think like, like I've aligned myself as a coach, but they understand I'm a different coach. I'm not the coach and I don't do, and I never would involve myself in selection because that would compromise my role immediately. Yeah. Well, I might have opinions, but I'm not at the end of the day got to vote at the table around who should be playing and who should not be playing.
0: Yeah, it's uh and that's why I think it's so neat and, um, and and I've and I obviously feel like it's so much about you know you talk about Maslow's hierarchy needs, something I yeah. I base a lot of stuff off. I don't know if it's yep. you know right. perfect, but it's a it's a pretty good starting point. You know, that psychological safety is so important yes. if you want to have if you want to reach actualization.
1: Yeah, and I think the thing about it is is that. You know, we assume that uh, psychological safety equals everybody's happy and no one's challenged. And that's where I think,
0: yeah. you know, it's
1: like I'm a parent. So my, my parenting consists of both care and challenge. Else my kids are going to come out, right. you know, one way or the other, either beaten down or no resilience. And so I think it's very similar with our athletes.
0: Yeah and I, and, I, and so you know as as you dive more into it I think that's the that's what's hard is yeah like you said giving the care and the challenge and having everybody in the organization recognize that's important um so much of it is helping someone develop the skills and knowing when to use those skills at what at what moment right
1: yeah absolutely and I think you know go back to like if I was a coach I'd say to a coach like hey make them part of your make them part of your staff like make them part of your coaching team don't silo them yeah. Define what success looks like for them and champion their work. If you do those four things as a head coach, you're going to get the best out of your mental skills or mental performance coach. You're going to get the best out of them. And man, I talked to people all over the world who get plunked in an environment with none of those things in place and then get fired six months later or a year later. And the sort of the feedback is, Oh, they just didn't really have any impact. And I would say the system was not designed for them to have impact. In fact, the system was preventing impact. And until the system changed, their work was always going to suffer. But often the allure of high-performance sport in particular, people will stay in a role that they know that they're not having impact or they're unhappy with because, you know, it's prestigious or they enjoy it or they go to games and that, where, you know, I think I'm, I'm a little bit older. I'm like, if I'm not having impact, I'm out the door.
0: Yeah.
1: I just don't want to be there. Yeah,
0: and people... It, 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 And the other thing is you kind of hit on it, like you said, like six months as a time frame. And I feel like with something with like mental skills or physical skills or anything that you're learning, it's yeah. really difficult to put a time frame on. But a lot of times people are trying to put a time frame on the development of a mental skill or a physical skill. And they really kind of stack on each other. And you don't really know when it's going to, you know, when they're going to when they're going to realize it, what they have in front of them and be able to go and use it
1: yeah I mean I have a little equation for high performance. I probably stole it off someone, but you know high performance equals capability minus interference. And so as a coach, you're always thinking, what am I what's my major role? Am I increasing capability or am I removing interference? And I think throughout the maturation of a of an athlete's life, I think where you were and coaching at a high level with college basketball, ninety percent of your focus should have been just increasing their capability, right? increasing their capability, making them good, better at what they're already good at. You know, as you get into like the veteran athletes, I now work with we're much more in just reducing interference.
0: Yeah. But for
1: example, I have an athlete I'm working with now who's 32, rugby player, and he's worked in the mental skills, never in his career. And he's done it the last two years, had the best two years of his career. And it wasn't because I worked with him, but because he opened up an area of performance he hadn't explored before and saw it as something like incredibly exciting. Um, so you know, I think you know the, the challenge is, yes, when do those when do those skills show up? Well, it's like any other thing. It, you, you can't always predict it, but there's often a time where the interference is reduced enough and the capability is enhanced enough that someone is now operating quite near their capability, which, you know, I think, you know, there's some pro sports. is only a small window. I would love to say it's in 20 years, but it's not.
0: Yeah. Got so so much good stuff there. Um, I want to ask you about, you talk about cultural rebuilds. Yeah. Um, because I feel like when you take over, as a head coach, you take over a new job. Yeah. Every one of the new jobs you take over, not everyone, but 95% of them are really cultural rebuilds. Yeah. Um, how are you evaluating that when you come in? Um You know, just talk me through that process. I think that's really interesting coming from your perspective.
1: I think the first thing is to understand whether they have a cultural strategy. Mm. I think that's a really big part of it because, you know, culture is happening every day, regardless of whether we shape it or not. So to say that, you know, a team has no culture is a ridiculous statement. They always have a culture. And so, You know, if you're not intentional around what you want that culture to be like, then, you know, and I I love this from Stuart Lancaster, who was an England rugby coach. He said, you know, how do you define a good culture? And he said, it's pretty simple. He said, it was a a time of your career that was the best times of your life and you never wanted to leave it. I love that. It's just a simple, you know, like you loved being there and you didn't want to leave. Like that's, so to me, when I look at culture, I look at probably four or five major things. So. I think the first that these would be like pillars to work build your culture around i think the first is you've got to define the purpose of a team and that purpose um can't be winning okay that's not not the purpose of a team it, it normally should revolve around other people so you know for example as you know new zealand rugby has a very clear purpose which is to inspire and unify a nation so if that's your anchor of your purpose And also your purpose is something you should be able to do every day, not just in big moments. So once your purpose is set up, then everything can flow out of that. So i put purpose, defining purpose critical. Second thing then you drop down to is what sort of success do we need to do, have to achieve our purpose? So going back to that first one about inspiring, unifying, we got to win games. So that's got to be, that's your vision, right? What's your vision of success on and off the field? We've got to win games. Got to perform up to our capability. So it doesn't mean we eliminate winning, but we understand where it fits. Then, what's our vision for the sort of people we want to be um, away from the sport? Right. Right. Okay. So then you got that. Then I would go identity. Okay, as a massive pillar of your culture. So identity is, to me, what is your what what's unique about you that serves as a competitive advantage. So you think about. Um, teams that play to their identity they're teams that we recognize that they utilize the things that are distinctive about them to be competitively to have a competitive advantage so for example you know if you think about the football world cup that we just had you know you think france is going to play in a way that is true to who the french are the argentinians you know like we always talked about when we went to international tournaments like in New Zealand, the way we play, we're sort of we're hardworking. We're not spectacular. We're connected. We'll we'll out, we'll we'll um we'll fight we're determined. You know, we're gonna go. I remember in uh, I think it was two thousand and nineteen. We played the three Lions of England, who were the like third ranked team in the world, in Brighton in the south of England. It was the world just before the Women's Football World Cup. This team was on a rebuild, and uh, we beat them one 0 First time a New Zealand team had ever beaten an English team at any level, and they had ninety percent possession. Wow. But we just stayed connected, fought for each other. So, what I'm saying is, your identity is what's unique about you, and how do you use it as a competitive advantage? And then the final part would be around your behaviors and your standards like, how, okay, what we got to translate that identity into is what does that look every day for us to be true to that identity? So, once we've defined that, so Like, when we train, were we true to that identity? When we did recovery, were we true to that identity? When we did film, were we true to that identity? And so we want to put as much emphasis on the identity being owned by the playing group and then living that and owning that as much as they possibly can. So so cultural rebuild, I would look at those four areas. One, first to see that if they're defined or not, often they're not. They're often not defined. So there's often not a cultural strategy. There's an inherited culture. And then your job is to come in and try and change it. But what are you going to change it to? Right. you got to change it to something that is reflective of the team. Because we talk about the name on the back of the jersey, but ultimately it's the name on the front. That's who you're representing. There's people that are paying money who are, you know, like you thought about all those people that came to your games, like someone worked two jobs to come to a game. What do you want them? What do they want to see? Yeah. They want to see a team that reflects their identity and it performs in a way that's true to who they are. So then, how do we
0: develop that? Um, God, this is this is great stuff. You know, when when you started going through your four things there with cultural strategy, yeah. For some reason I went right to the uh, Golden State Warriors. Yeah. Um, you know, they talk about their sense of purpose, and Steve yep. Corey talked about them playing with joy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. You know, obviously they have to win enough to play, be able to yep. showcase joy. That makes complete yep. sense. Their competitive advantage is how they shoot the ball. Yep. Um, you know, people forget now. Yeah. That, you know, they people didn't believe that a Steph Curry led point as a point guard and Klay yep. Thompson as a two guard. They didn't think those guys could win together because they shoot too many jumpers. They sort of started this idea of well, you can win by making outside shots. It became like a big thing, and but they changed the way they play. To yeah. be able to do and I guaranteed different.
1: you, if Steve, Steve would have looked at Steve Kerr would have looked at that and went, We're from the Bay Area. What's the history of the Bay Area? Man, we're we're innovative, we're creative, yeah. we do things different. So you can see how that identity of the place that you represent, yeah. now becomes translated into the way you play. And the think that's where the magic happens.
0: Yeah. And 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 when you say the magic happens, the people there can appreciate that style of play. It's um, them. The yeah, exactly. So it just takes to an entirely new level. It's sort of like if you're playing football in Detroit, being a tough, hard-nosed football yeah. team in a tough, hard-nosed city just makes sense, right?
1: Yeah, well, it was like Lakers Showtime. You know, you're under the big lights in LA. You got to play that way. You got yeah. Magic. You know, you got LeBron. You've got this is our that's our DNA. It's our 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 heritage. So. You know, and I think the thing about culture and identity, identity is not something you create on a, on a whiteboard. Identity is something you inherit.
0: You know, one of the things I looked into, I want to ask you about this word. Yeah. Um, I've, I was really doing a lot of research on subcultures. Yeah. Um, and yeah. because of that, because if you don't mirror the institution, yeah. you're going to end up having to build a subculture to overcome whatever. And yeah. subcultures are good or bad. But yeah. there are another aspects. So I want to ask you a little bit about this subcultures, especially when you come in and you kind of look at organizations.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, like I follow the NFL and, um, you know, and enjoy the NFL. And MCDC, you know, Motor City, Dan Campbell's getting, you know, some real good accolades. Yeah. And, well, I think he had to change the culture. Yeah, And agreed. the culture was we're, we're, we draft well, we always lose, we battle, we can't get things right. And he had to almost not not change it back to, to like not not reinvent it, but bring it back to what Detroit represents, right? And now when you watch them, you go, "That's Detroit."
0: Did you watch the Hard Knocks with with the Lions and all that?
1: Yeah, I did watch quite a bit of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. What'd you think about Dan Campbell watching that watching Hard Knocks? And are you surprised at the success they've been able to have after watching it?
1: What was interesting to me was. And it has a limited shelf life if you're not winning, but the energy. Yeah. So if you think that you got a team that's suffering, what you need is optimism and energy, right? Like if you don't have optimism, and I think, I think what um, Dan Campbell's done well is he's painted a picture of what that team could look like if they lived their identity and they're at their best.
0: You know, I thought one of the things that was, that was neat. And I, on it was, they, were, they started off like one in five or one in six yeah. or something. And, and their owner comes out, and she basically doubles down on Dan Campbell Way. and, and yeah. on the GM, and she says, no, we believe in what we're doing. we And she just like – this, like, growth leadership that we're kind of talking about, yeah. that we're, I guess we're kind of skating around yeah to have her – the reason – I mean, to me, the reason they turned the whole season around is because, like, at one and six whatever they were, she could have turned around and said, well, we're going to evaluate this at the end of the year. It made everybody uneasy. But instead yeah. she said – we're going to double down. We believe in what we're doing. We're not happy with the results, but we actually think we're improving. Yep. And I don't think she gets enough credit for really the turnaround because without her showing that he, that she has the back and belief, yeah. it allows everybody in the organization to, to sort of wiggle around it. That's a tough one.
1: Like, I was with a team, this was probably two or three years ago during COVID, actually, and uh, we came out of the gates. We went five and one. COVID hit. Competition got suspended. We came back and we went over nine. For the rest of the year, we lost our first two games, and you know there were people calling for heads, but all the signs were there that things are right. Yeah. Uh, we won the next eight in the row, row and lost the final. You know, like it just seemed right. like that, because all the signs were there. And I'm one. I wonder what Dan Campbell is like. They knew the signs were there, and the lag between. The behaviors that he's trying to install in the players and them having actual impact on performance was maybe sometimes it could be slower than what you anticipate. But if you can see the signs, that's yeah. why I love it. Like Joe Madden had this line, seek progress, not perfection. And I just think it's a great line yeah. around that to evaluate that stuff.
0: Joe Madden's like an underappreciated uh, manager. Um, yeah. If you really do some research and study some of the stuff that he says, stuff that he's written and stuff, he, he has, he comes up some really good stuff and obviously his success wasn't an accident, yeah. um, but you can tell the intentionality, you know, you know, the right, with the rate right, with the uh, Tampa Bay Devil Rays when they were, they might've been Tampa Bay Devil Rays at the time. I think they were, yeah. um, they, you know, they were young. And so I think they did a Halloween night where they were, like all dressed up or something and, you know, just did some different things with that young group to keep the energy at the right level to keep pushing it forward.
1: Yeah, there's a book called The Cubs' Way, which sort of goes into a bit of detail around Madden and Theo Epstein. It's probably one of the best books you'll read on how to change a culture and win a championship. And, like, Madden's out there. like I imagine he's not everyone's cup of tea. I'd imagine that's the case because, like, if they're in a losing streak, once he just, like, brought a magician in, he, like, he brought, uh, like, animals, like a zoo into the uh, – he just did it. But he was trying to keep the guys loose. Yeah. You know and not stress out too much and i mean from a managerial aspect there were there's always big questions around his game management in game seventh with chapman right. but you know they came out he got the job done he was and what is go back to what i said before sometimes you're you run into a coaching it's just i think it's just when time and chance meet where a coach is perfect for that group and madam was perfect for that group of cubs but then yeah. he went to the angels but didn't work like right was he not you know like there's always it's always both sides right does the is the group at the level where your coaching just matches beautifully and you take them to a whole new place but yeah. know.
0: you know one of the when you, when you talk about that it makes me think about a guy like Mark Jackson yeah um, who who I don't know if he gets enough credit for I mean he really took a lot of the lumps with with that younger yeah. warriors team yeah. and I would think as a coach having gone through with the younger teams he did a really good job of teaching them the mindset that it yeah. took to become you – know, to take the levels and the steps that they took at the early level, which are often really hard to do. Yeah. And Like I said, Steve Kerr comes in almost at the perfect time when they've got some of those other things established. And it's been interesting watching the Warriors' young players right now mm. because they have not developed at the level that you would anticipate. And so I wonder if it's just a little bit of like well, that might role. be a yeah.
1: we talked about. Well, Mark Jackson might be the guy that takes you from you're not yeah. that good to you're good but you need a Steve Kerr to take you from good to great. Yeah, And then when that cycle ends, it might be time for Steve Kerr to go, listen, you need another development sort of base coach in the building now because we've got to develop all this talent. And, you know, and that's the difference between, you know, particularly in American sports is do you buy talent or you develop talent? Mm. And depending on your fan base and your appetite, like the Yankees, (laughs) Yankees can't develop talent. Right. They got to buy talent because their fan base expects them to compete every single year. And that'll be the question now for Golden State, who've been historically not a great team. Yeah. Like over the years. Right now they're they're in the top echelon of teams. When the Steph Curries and when those guys begin to step into a way and what are they going to do? Are they going to buy in and you know and trade or recruit free agents? Or are yeah. they going to go, we're prepared to build? It's a big question. Who knows?
0: Yeah. In your experience, what do great players do?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. My number one thing that they do is they take ownership. It's not even close. So what I mean by ownership is they just refuse to blame factors outside of themselves when they don't perform. So like, you know, we talk about recruiting or we talk about drafting. Like if I could look for one quality so I have a question that I'll ask, athletes that we're interested in and it's simply this like you're good can you tell me why you're good
0: mm.
1: if you can't tell me why you're good i'm worried because if you don't know why you're good then how do we have any assurance that you'll have be consistent in your performance Like those those athletes that have ownership understand the, the all the little pieces that go into them being a, a really really good performer and they own all of those little pieces, whether it be the way they work out, the mindset, their recovery, their diet, their sleep. It's and it's not anyone else's fault, you know. Like you think about. To, so to me, that sort of is the the, the foundational yeah like quality. Like, so you know, I own my development. I own how many athletes, like you coach, particularly in college, think about this, who just I completely blame everyone around them for why things didn't eventuate in the way that they hoped and they refuse to take ownership over their own actions. Oh, you know, it's,
0: I was working on something this morning, actually, mm. and it's like five stages of where players are. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a really, that that you, you're going to make me change something on this, on this uh, thing I'm working on because that's really valuable what you're talking I mean, about. If we you know, you think about it, particularly in one the or level. two on my team every year,
1: you think about it in pro sports, like what I've worked in most of my life is that everything's done for them, right? The travel, their accommodation, you know, like their, their gear is laid out, like they don't have to do anything except for turn up and do their work. And I don't think that's helpful, right. I don't think it actually enhances ownership and. You know, like I I think about this uh, one player in particular that we were talking to in a draft and, and the player was, I said, you know, you're good. Can you tell me why you're good? And for 10 minutes, he laid his performance foundations out on the table. Wow! This is how I work out. This is my program around my arm management. This is who I use for my body. This is what I do in physical therapy. This is my mind work I do. And I was like, all right, draft him, draft him. Because yeah, I don't care whether he's not quite at the talent level yet. He understands himself, and he's taken ownership over the trajectory of his career, and he's not going to blame anyone else if things don't quite pan out the way they way they should. That's good.
0: What's uh, what do great coaches do?
1: Well, I think they care. I, I can't go past care, as they care, and and, and I think I think about. Yeah, they care and they connect, and I know. I mean that—that's a very, very vanilla answer, but you think about it. Like when I think about when I meet with a player, I sort of have, and I, I don't formalize this. I'm just a one-two-three guy, so forgive that.
0: When I, I, I with, love it. That's why. That's why your social media is awesome because it's just direct <laughs> to the point
1: and so yeah, there. So when I meet with a player, I think there's three things that have got to happen. So I've got to connect with them. And, and I'll come back to this. If I can connect with them, I can build trust. If I have trust, I can have impact or influence over them. I can't have influence or impact without connection and trust. And so the connection is the human side, like, who are you? What makes you you? Once they understand that, geez, you're in the room because you care about me and you want to make me better, I trust you now. Now we got some work to do. If I trust you... Yeah. Now we can actually impact the way, that you're going, the way that your career is going. We can actually coach you properly. But if you have a player that you can't connect with who doesn't trust you, good luck having impact. Yeah. So that would sort of be, to me, the main foundation. And then there's also, you know, like when you think about coaching now, it's very different. Like you've got to manage as a coach. Think about this. You've got to manage. Like I look at your career and go, you've had to manage your, you had to manage a game plan. Yeah. You have to manage the development of the players, then you have to, to manage your coaching staff, then you have to manage the culture, then you have to manage your relationship with the academic director. You know, like it just yeah. is. I think coaching now, you know, it's almost like if you're a head coach, you're more of a CEO than an actual coach. Yeah, well, I'm talking probably more on the coaching grass, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the dirt sort of level. Now, if you say what makes a great head coach, different conversation, but what makes a great coach is the ability to connect in order to build trust so they they can impact both the life of the athlete during performance and away from performance.
0: What do the best organizations do?
1: They support, they do the same thing. They do the same thing. And they, you know, like, you know, like the, the idea of, and I can't work out and we do this sometimes as coaches is that, we will motivate the best out of you through fear and anxiety is such a load of absolute.
0: <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah. You know, there's so like the other 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 days days. There, there probably, yeah, there are, there are probably two times a year where I have to go and be like fear. And I yeah. loathe those times the most. Yeah. I'm like, I, I don't want to be up here screaming at you about putting you on no. the baseline. Like, I don't want to do that.
1: No, um,
0: that's like no, and
1: it's the, the old adage that, you know, like, you know, if you, if, you, if you treat people mean that they will be more attentive in their work, it's not true. So, you know, if you can reduce anxiety by creating belonging, now conditional belonging. So the only place we have unconditional belonging is our family because, you know, our performance doesn't affect our relationships with our family. This shouldn't. But in sports, you never have unconditional belonging. Like, I don't even really like the idea of us calling our team a family. I just think sometimes that, you know, like a family is really hard to get kicked out of. If you don't perform, you get dropped or your scholarship gets removed or you no longer get a contract and you got told the whole time you're part of a family. Well, families don't do that. So we're an organization that is trying to create belonging so our people feel feel safe and and, and relaxed. Then they're going to be at their best. So the organizations that have the ability to do that, like there's one organization that I do some work with, in the UK, their their coaches don't have contracts; they're open. Oh wow! So when does the coach finish? When they decide.
0: Yeah. You know, you hit on so many good things there. You know, it. So, I used to have this sign in my office that said, "It's all about family." Yeah. And about two years ago, like just as I dove into more about family and yeah, and like. You know, I was like, this isn't. You know, this is a conditional environment.
1: Yeah, of course it is. If you are like, you
0: stay in it, right? It's a conditional environment. If you don't rebound the ball, I have to play someone who's going to rebound the ball. And you know, like, you know, you sit down for dinner with your family. Everybody eats the same amount, but yeah, when we go on the floor. Everyone's not going to eat the same amount. Like, it's not. You know, so I, I was even like, you know, these are my brothers. I'm like this. You know, the guys will say, you know, this is my brother. I'm like, no, like you're going to transfer out of here in two months. You would never leave your brother behind. No, so, and you're probably going to
1: text them a lot for the first three months, and then you'll lose contact.
0: Right, you know. So I, I I actually changed my dynamic with that, with being family. I'm like this, this isn't a family. I can love and care about you and want the very best for you, and I'm going to coach you. Yeah. Um. But but we're not a family.
1: I think when you call a team a family, you add emotional expectations that are unable to be achieved. Yeah. So if you say we're we're a family here, that means you can you can't you can't take away court time for me. Because that's not what family Like if you're an assistant coach and you're saying we're family, that means you can never find me. Well, if you're underperforming, that's going to happen. So using family sounds great because it sort of enables and enhances the perception of us being connected, but also creates a false narrative and creates emotional expectations that are often unmet. And then players leave the environment. They said we're a family, but we weren't.
0: I'd rather just
1: say we're a family.
0: Yeah, are not. That's so good. Um, that's exactly. I kind of went through that whole, like, in my mind, I was thinking that the whole time. I was like, man, this is, I got to a point where I was like, this is really, I can still love you and care about you, want the best for you, but it does mean that. It's just a charge word
1: with a whole yeah. bunch of emotional obligations attached that not are not always helpful.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, I could talk to you forever. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit before I let you go, just about the use of analytics in sport. Um, again, one of your tweets over the last decade, there has been a quite a bit conjecture between analytics and the role of a scout. I don't believe it's complicated as people want to portray it, and then you sort of do a thread yeah. with that. Um, and I just love your take on this. So let's talk a little bit about analytics and sport uh, yeah. over over time. So when I think
1: about analytics and numbers, numbers tell you, specifically if you're projecting from historic, this is what we believe. So the key word is what. This is what the athlete is capable of, okay, which I think is fantastic, but it doesn't explore the why or the how. So I'll give you an example of a why. Why did athlete A perform well in this environment, but not as well in that environment? Why? Because environmental factors will impact performance. Um, The size of the ballpark, you know, I'm talking about sort of more my baseball background here. You know, the division the they were in. So, you know, like there's numbers of things like which are all, all weighed in. And we, when we can't, so I'm not saying they don't matter, they really matter. But all, it, all the numbers do is they paint us this is what we think the athlete can do. And if they got enough data, this is what the athlete has done. What I'm really interested in is why they've done that. Okay. So, was it the way they trained in an offseason? Was it, you know, like exploring that? So like we say to an athlete, I remember I worked with um, a pitcher who's part of the the, um, Giants organization. And he was with Kansas City and the Rockies before that. And his ERA for the first like eight years of his career was like four and a half, probably first six or seven. The last five or six years of his career was like two, and he won set up man of the year or three World Series. Um, What changed? I'll tell you something crazy that changed he got taught how to throw a uh, sinker. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, like, like, if you had not known that, you go, oh, this guy's only a five ERA guy. We're well, in an off season. He went to a coach who used to be an ex-player he worked with. They taught him how to throw a sinker. The sinker became unhittable. So, <laughs> and the rest of his career went in a totally different direction. What would have analytics done with that? Right. So that's some of the why. And then the how is the system or the, the processes that athlete has in place. And how familiar they are with what makes them good. So, you know, as I said before, like you might be good. Can you tell me why you're good? Okay. Because if you can't tell me why, then we can't have any assurance that you will be consistent in your performance. So I think good, good uh, player overview or uh, player review would look at the numbers and then dig deeper, which I think a lot of clubs are starting to do more and more now. Yeah and understanding the why and the how behind those numbers and what, and looking into those factors to go, are they going to be incredibly variable? So you think about a guy that you've recruited and his numbers around three-point shooting with this, this, and that. Well, what happens if he gets put into an offense that doesn't value the three? Right. You know, you're... Well, that's just a one simple change. Uh, And then all of a sudden, the analytics on that player of, dramatically shifted but has his skill shifted
0: right and what goes into let's just say shooting three-point shooting if yeah. if i'm a real big believer in three-point shooting then i'm going to let you miss more yeah um because i recognize exactly. that right but if i'm not and i'm really locked in the defense then i think you should make yeah. every three-point shot you take that's wide open and yeah. that pressure also the pressure of that environment also changes your response
1: yeah, and, and that's a great example, someone like Aaron Judge. Oh, he struck out 150, 200 times last year. Yeah, also hit 60-odd runs. Right. So what do you want? Yeah, You know, that's where I think, I think, I mean, I loved Moneyball when it first came out. And I think Moneyball was brilliant because it introduced the idea that numbers are really, really critical to understand Absolutely. these behavioral economic people who are just incredibly bright and we need them. But then also we need the coaches that are on the ground that understands the um, ingredients that go into those numbers and how we can work with an athlete to make sure those the right ingredients are going in so those numbers continue to be produced.
0: Yeah. And I think the pairing of you hit on a little bit of Mark Jackson, we talked about Mark Jackson, Steve Kerr. The pairing of the right coach for that person at the right time is really everything. You know, you look at the NBA and you've got all these really young teams right now. And when I, when I connect with people about those young teams, they ask me about, I said, well, they're going to need, they're probably going to need a new coach at some point. This guy's going to go with them to a certain point, And then there's going to need okay. to be someone come in. I said, but secondly, you're going to need a veteran in that locker room at some point that provides them another level of clarity that they just haven't had along, along the way. Okay. And, and what's the value of a guy like Chris Paul being with shot Gilkis, Alexander for one season, in Oklahoma city, And now he's put together three best years of his career with a great development staff. They have Oklahoma city too, but all those combinations of, of allowing those guys to be their best are all super important.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, like we talk about coach, but I think the playing group makeup's really important. I know normally like to divide a playing group into three categories. So it's called lions, wolves, and sheep. And I reckon you got to have that balance, right? So your lions, your, your, you guys that are going to lead from the front, they've probably been in the league five plus years. Mm -hmm. your wolves are the guys that come in when the game's in a blowout (laughs) and they go score 50 Mm -hmm. and then your sheep just want to survive. So you think about those young guys in the NBA in the first two years, they probably just want to survive. And our job as coaches is to nurture them and just help them get their feet on the ground. Right. But if you've got too many of them, no good, no good. (sighs)
0: So like
1: divide your squad up like lions, sheep and wolves and make sure you got that balance. Right. You've got too many lions, and that's what I reckon happened in Miami.
0: Yeah, yeah. God, this is th- you've been amazing. I, I could talk to you forever. I, I got one final question for you. Yeah. We do this thing on last call. Yep. Oh man, I feel like there's we could keep going, but I, I, I we'll will we'll pause it here. Um, you, you've got a person on your left who's someone who's been retired. Yeah. Um, they can also be deceased, and you got a person on your right who is still alive and around and, and still working. It's the end of the night. It's the last call. We're having our last beer. We're sitting at the at the bar together. What two people do you have beside you?
1: Wow. What a question. Man, that is such a awesome question. Well, I think the man on my left is my grandfather who's passed.
0: Okay. Why is he there?
1: Because he's just a hell of a man and really funny and would have been the the person i would want to have my last beer it was an <laughs> irish catholic immigrant who was just wild but just a great family man and and that and then i think you know like the person on my right you know i'm going to probably go more professional here um then family because the family ones we could yeah. always go with um probably the, the person on my right would actually at the moment probably steve kerr yeah I would love to know, you know, like I've watched quite a bit about Steve Kerr and like I've heard stories about Steve Kerr and, um, you know, we had a lady here in New Zealand called Chelsea Lane who worked as a physical therapist for the Golden State Warriors for a long time. And obviously she was associated with it. And the reality is from everyone I've talked to, he's as genuine is what you see in a media conference is that 24 seven. And I would just find it fascinating to understand what makes them tick.
0: Yeah. Ah, I agree. Yeah. Aaron, where can our, where can our viewers, our fans, where can they find you?
1: Um, I'm pretty low key as far as like, I don't have a website or nothing. It's just, uh, I think I don't even know my Twitter handle. You probably, I can't remember it.
0: Aaron Walsh, NZ.
1: Yeah, Aaron Walsh, NZ is Twitter. And then LinkedIn, I do quite a bit on LinkedIn just Aaron Walsh, you'll probably find me. Um, and then I just use Instagram of it, honestly, and just for my mates.
0: I love it. Well, I appreciate your reflections. This has been so much fun. I hope we can stay in touch because I think this is. Yeah. Well, if you, you want to do two so well, at time. some point,
1: let me know, you know, in a few months, if people, if people enjoyed it, and they're not sick of me then,
0: you know, I'll jump it. back on with you. We'll do it. Aaron, thank you for your time, man. We'll talk soon. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us on The Last Call, powered by Speakeasy where careers grow through relationships, and relationships grow through speakeasy. We hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to connecting with you soon.